that's quite the introduction. It's good to be back with you here this morning. Um, Casey invites me about once a year to be with you. I'm not sure if I was with you last year. I, I think he was mad at me for, for some reason. I don't know. I didn't do well the year before, but it's good to be back with you again uh, this year. So uh, you heard a lot about me, and it's a lot of just kind of wah-wah, blah-blah-blah, mumbo-jumbo stuff. The best way for me to introduce myself to you is the picture that you saw. So we'll throw that back up. That is my wife, Emily, with a much harder job than I have, uh, even now this morning. I am with you here, and it's super easy. And she has been wrangling all of that on what is typically a uniquely evil uh, time period throughout the week, that hour, hour and a half of trying to get kids ready for church. There's something uniquely satanic and evil about that experience that she is left doing alone often. And so these are, this is our family. We're often asked, how many kids do you have? And our answer now is, well, it's complicated. That's a hard answer uh, to give. Uh, we have four daughters, three of them biological, one of them adopted. And then on the far left, you see the newest addition to our family. Guiana came to live with us when she was 17 through foster care. She had a two-week-old baby boy named Jordan. They spent the first two weeks of his life sleeping on a floor in a child protective services office in North Dallas before we became aware of their story and had them come and live with us. They lived with us for quite a while. She turned 18 and technically became an adult and aged out, which meant she ran away. She took Jordan with her and she's now 19 and she's in and out of our home and we, we are uh, stuck with her, which is what we say. Whether you like it or not, you are stuck with us forever. And then kind of privately in the, in the quietness of our own soul, we say, and whether we like it or not, we're stuck with you too, right? Uh, so we are stuck together and that's how this thing is. And it is our ambition to prove to her that we actually mean that because she has grown up in a world and with a life where the people who were charged to care for her the most are actually the ones who hurt her the most. And so for someone to say to her, we love you, that's actually a negative thing because for her, those who loved her have hurt her the most. And so love is a very hurtful thing. For people to say to her, we're with you and we're for you and there's nothing you could ever do that would push us away she has no grounds whatsoever to believe that because everyone in her life has proved otherwise. And so our ambition to her is to continually reinforce with her, you are stuck with us forever. There is nothing you could ever do to push us away. And let's be clear, she tries very, very hard to find new and creative ways to push us away. And there are moments when we wanna step back and say, you win, forget it, we're out. However, we're stuck with each other and we're family. And so we have adopted her into our family, but probably even more profoundly over the last year and a half, two years of knowing her is she has given us the privilege of being adopted into her little family. And so we are now this new family together. And so it's complicated. And if you've ever engaged in the process of foster care adoption or, or even just stepping into the lives of people that are struggling, you understand when I say it's just complicated. There's literally no way that I could find the right words to adequately describe what the experience has been like. It's just complicated. So that's our current reality. Let me begin this morning by confessing something to you. I, uh, I go to a drive through oil change in College Station because I'm too vain to like get out and sit in a nasty uh, oil change place, right? 
Uh, it's just gross. So I go to the drive-through and it's really fast. And then you get a free car wash after and I pay a premium for it, but I'm a, I've, I've got a liberal arts degree. I'm not like a blue collar guy. I'm like, uh, whatever's the cleanest, fastest um, um, way for me, I will do it. And so this unique aspect of driving through the oil change place is they change your oil real quick and then a guy rolls around, I'm playing on my phone while they're doing like manly work, I'm checking Facebook on my phone and he comes around to the window and he shows me the dipstick, okay? I don't know if that's even what it's called. It's just like this thing, it's a stick they dip. So it's a dipstick and he holds it out in front of me and, uh, and he says, uh, you see the oil level? And I'm like, oh yeah, yeah, looks good. Totally cool, awesome, good job guys. Uh, thanks, right? And they're, they're asking for my approval. They're asking for me to give approval to the fact that the new oil level is correct. But my confession to you this morning is that when they show me that dipstick, I literally have no idea what I'm looking at or what I'm approving or what I'm signing off on. So I just kind of slowly nod with this look of approval, like, yeah, definitely. Good job, guys. Appreciate it, right? And I have absolutely no idea what I'm signing off on, okay? They could have put Coke in my car uh, it, for all I know, and I could just nod with approval and the joke's on me, okay? And it reminds me often that sometimes we look at scripture and we look at issues of the gospel and we look at verses that we've read and we've heard a million times and we kind of give this nod of approval, this slow nod of approval with, with this, this confidence. But if we're really honest, we have no idea what we're really signing off on. We don't really understand what it is that we're looking at and we don't really understand what it is that we are approving of and ultimately signing off on. And so this morning, what I don't want to do is tell you a bunch of things that you're supposed to do. I think that our primary issue in the church and as believers, and I'll confess this to myself, my primary issue is not that I don't know what I'm supposed to do. It's that I just don't want to do it. And I don't really like what it costs me, potentially. And then my ultimate driving question is, I know what I'm supposed to do, but I just don't know if I have what it takes to do it. And so my issue, and probably your issue as well, is that if you've spent any time in the Christian community and in the church, you probably need to hear less about what it is you're supposed to do. We've heard that ad nauseum. And what we need to hear is, is answers to some more intrinsic, deeper level questions that aren't so much up here, here's what you're supposed to do, now go do it, but instead that shows you a picture of what life would look like if we actually did these things. One of my favorite illustrations from a very well-known author and speaker several years ago, he was, he was telling a story, a hypothetical story about if he were to tell his kids to go clean their room. Go clean your room. With clarity, I command you, go clean your room. What do you want me to do, dad? I was very clear, clean your room. And they say, got it. So they run up to the room and instead of cleaning their room, they, they write down and they memorize what their dad said. Clean your room, clean your room. I've memorized it. And then they get some, some friends over and they start a small group where they begin to meet weekly to talk about what it conceptually might look like if we actually cleaned our room. They never actually clean their room. They just get together every week and talk about what it actually might look like if we did, right? Then they study it in the Greek. They go to seminary to learn more about uh, what the verbs and the articles mean in that phrase, clean your room. But at the end of the day, they never actually clean their room. And so they come back and their dad says, hey, you've, you still haven't cleaned your room. And their response is, yeah, but dad, we memorized what you said. We've done small group studies on it. We've, done, we've gone to seminary about it. We've even preached sermons on it. But at the end of the day, you still haven't cleaned your room. 
And what we're really, really good at, if we can just be honest in here this morning, it's kind of conceptually and mentally assenting to some things and memorizing them and talking about them and studying them. But then these deeper level intrinsic questions of, yeah, I get it, but you don't understand my situation. And you don't understand. I don't think I've got what it takes. And you don't understand. I don't know if I could really absorb the cost of what it would, what it would incur on me to actually clean my room. And so I'm just going to live in kind of this conceptual world where we talk about it a lot, but we're never actually going to do it. So what I'm not going to do this morning is tell you what you're supposed to do. What I'm going to do this morning is just we're going to unpack a picture of the gospel, which kind of lays out before us this beautiful, rich, full uh, picture of the work of Jesus on our behalf that I'm convinced we would never otherwise see without actually doing what it says to do. And to understand with a greater depth and intimacy what it is we're actually looking at and kind of approving of and nodding our head and signing off on. With a greater sense of richness and depth and intimacy. So ultimately what I want us to walk out of here with this morning is not so much a list of more things that we need to do. But with a greater depth of intimacy and celebration and appreciation of what Jesus has done for us. And then this desire to begin to find unique and beautiful and powerful ways to live out experientially, not just conceptually, what it is that Jesus has done for us into the lives of those around us. So here we go. Galatians chapter four, verse four, begins to unpack one of the most rich and beautiful and full expressions of the gospel that I think is is found anywhere else in scripture. And in just a few simple statements, the Apostle Paul lays out for us this comprehensive, holistic application of the gospel. He essentially says, here's what Jesus has done, and here are the, the holistic and comprehensive implications in your life. Here's what Jesus has done, and there is no part of who you are that goes untouched or unaffected by the work of Jesus. And this becomes the foundation and the framework and the, and the catalyst behind everything else that we do in life. And what we're going to see in the end is that, yes, there's issues of adoption and foster care, which I've been asked to preach on. But really what we're going to preach on is is the context around all of that. Why would we step into foster care? Why would we open our homes to adoption? Because it's part of a much grander and more beautiful story of the gospel. And that's where I want us to press ourselves into. And then we're going to see some unique applications. So Galatians chapter four begins to unpack this really beautifully for us. It says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. There's that word. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So let's begin to pick this passage apart a little bit. Let's start in verse four. It says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son born of a woman. And so this is my favorite Christmas verse that I never hear preached at Christmas. So we're gonna have a little Christmas in June here. You've got what, six months to convince Casey to preach this verse at Christmas. Christmas is just this layup for us, for the gospel. And in Galatians chapter four, verse four, and it's not even a complete sentence, Paul really encapsulates the essence of what we celebrate at Christmas. He says this, when the fullness of time had come, that phrase literally means at just the right time. At just the right time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. 
at just the right time, Jesus was born, physically born. And then that phrase under the law literally means condemned to die. And so here's what we celebrate at Christmas. At just the right time, Jesus was born, condemned to die. Now at Christmas, we leave off that condemned to die part because it's not like super happy magi shepherd angel, right? We save that for Easter. But it's nonetheless more true at Christmas that Jesus came ultimately to die. And he makes that very clear from the very beginning of his ministry. He's given several opportunities to sidestep the cross, to kind of shirk his responsibility and to, to, to take the easier path, but he remains faithful to the path of redemption set before him that he knew would ultimately lead him to the cross. He came to give his life as a ransom. He came to die. That Jesus was born to die. And so if you were in a seminary class now, the professor might say, this is the doctrine of incarnation. This doctrine of incarnation, that God would wrap himself up in our humanity, that he would become human and live among us, that he would incarnate himself, step out of glory and into our humanity. And so the best way for me to understand the doctrine of incarnation is, is through Tex-Mex, because that's just the a great lens to understand most of life, right? So the next time you're at Chewy's and you order uh, chili con carne, you're ordering chili with meats, con carne. That's the same root word as incarnation. It's con carne, incarne. It's literally God with meat, okay? So my seminary professors roll over in their grave every time I use Tex-Mex to illustrate this beautiful doctrine of incarnation, but it's true. And the next time you're at Chewy's or whatever your favorite is, and you order chili con carne, and you take a bite, and you stop, and you say, you know what, friends? You know what this reminds me of? This reminds me of the doctrine of incarnate. You'll just impress the heck out of all of them, right? It's literally God with meat on. And here's what we celebrate at Christmas, and here's what Paul is just very beautifully and simply laying out for us, that at just the right time, Jesus stepped into our story, wrapped himself up in our brokenness, literally, carried our brokenness to the cross, was broken by our brokenness, so that you and I don't have to be broken anymore. And that's the good news of the gospel. That God is the kind of God that says, I, I see you where you are, and I'm coming after you. And see, that's something very different than the message of religion. The message of religion suggests that God makes a different deal with us. The message of religion says that God's deal with us is this, that God says, I see you where you are in your brokenness, in your difficulty, in your darkness. Now here's the deal I'll make with you. You clean yourself up enough and get your act together enough. And then maybe one day you can be where I am. But you got to clean yourself up. You got a lot of work to do before you can be where I am. That's the deal of religion. And that's not a good deal at all. It reminds me of this 15-year, now almost 16-year-long conversation that my wife and I have in our marriage, and I'll share because she's not here this morning. It's a conversation like many of you have. It's not a fight. It's not an argument. It's just this, um, we are both so principled and stubborn that we are going to agree to disagree until death do us part. Not one of us is going to back down on this, right? And it all revolves around this appliance that probably all of you have in your home just like us. It costs a few hundred bucks if you built your house or bought your house. It just kind of came with it. You don't really think much of it until it's time to use it. 
And it's this, it's this appliance that the name could not be more simple. It's this box under your counter. And if, if some foreigner came and had never seen one or an alien came to your home and said, what's that box under your counter? You'd say, that's the dishwasher. And they'd say, wow, what does that box do? And you'd say, it supposedly washes dishes. But in reality, it doesn't. It just constantly lies to us. The simplicity of its name suggests that it's capable of doing something that it's not actually capable of doing. And here's how I know, guys, because every time it's time to do the dishes, I don't seem to wash the dishes well enough before I put them into the washer of dishes, okay? And I say, what are you doing in our home then if you actually can't do the job that you claim to be able to do? I don't appreciate it. And I also don't seem to load the washer of dishes well at all. I don't load it correctly. That's a whole nother like marriage conference, right? My wife, there's personality profiles for people like my wife that unload dirty dishes in order to reload them correctly. And some of you are out there, you crazy people, right? I say, no, we should be able to put in crusted spaghetti dishes from a week ago, rock hard, calcified, throw it in there however we want, and it should be able to wash them. But no, I have to wash the dishes before. Or now we've got um, some very sweet ladies that come and clean our home once a month. We live like animals for a month and then they come and rescue us out from all of it, right? Guys, what do you have to do the night before the cleaning ladies are coming? You got to clean the house because why? The cleaning ladies are coming tomorrow? And I get it, pick up the toys so they like focus on the blinds and all that. I get it. I say, no, they're going to earn every penny that we pay them tomorrow. We're going to live like savages today, and they're going to bail us out tomorrow. That's how this thing works. I shouldn't have to clean the house before the cleaning ladies are coming. Or let's at least change their title, okay? I'm the cleaning person. They're just kind of the straightening up behind me ladies, right? Let's just not, let's not call them something that they're not. So this is the frustrating logic that my wife and I like to discuss often, And it's the frustrating logic of religion. You're telling me that I have to clean myself up enough before I can actually be with the only one that can clean me up. That's frustrating, that's disillusioning, that's off-putting, and that's ultimately hopeless. I have to clean myself up before I can actually be a part of a Christian community, before I can actually go to church, before I can actually be with the only one who can clean me up. That's not good news, but the good news of the gospel in Galatians chapter four, verse four, is that God doesn't say, I see you where you are, now clean yourself up. Instead, he says, I see you where you are, and I am coming after you, relentlessly coming after you. Scripture says that he will leave the 99 to find the one. He'll ignore the other coins to find the lost one. He will, with full abandon and no shame, run out to his son who who stinks of the pigsty that he's been living in simply because he's rejoicing that his son is home. This is the picture of God that says, I see you where you are and I am running out to you relentlessly and aggressively. I'm coming to you. And so in the gospel, we begin to see this really beautiful picture of, of God, that God is the kind of God that sees hard places and broken people and he moves towards them and not away from them. He moves towards them and not away from them. See, I'm not saying that you need, you need to move towards hard places. All we're doing this morning is not telling you what to do. We're just kind of showing you who God is in the gospel. This is what God has done for us. 
That God has said to each of us, I see you where you are and I am coming after you. I'm stepping into your story and we're going to begin to write an entirely new story together. That he's taken our brokenness upon himself. He's been broken by our brokenness so that you and I don't have to be broken anymore. And now Paul begins to unpack kind of the fullness of that. In verse five, he says, he did this to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Remember that phrase, under the law? He repeats it again, that Jesus was born under the law, condemned to die, so that we who were under the law, condemned to die, could now be transferred into his family. And so the doctrine of incarnation precedes this doctrine of adoption, that we have been adopted into the family of God because God has said, I see you where you are and I'm coming after you. Not because God has said, I see you where you are, now get your act together but because he said, I'm stepping into your story and we're going to begin to write an entirely new story together. And that begins with you being welcomed into my family, living under the provision and the protection and the security of my family. A dysfunctional one at best, but it's what we've got. That you are now God's and God is yours. We just sang about that. And so the first thing that we see is that we were once under the law, condemned to die, but we have now been set free from that and we have been adopted into his family. Scripture now says that there's now, therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because the law of the spirit of life has set us free from the law of sin and death. We have now been set free. Our past has been redeemed. Our past has been redeemed. So we can now look back on our past and it's no longer a source of condemnation. It's actually now a platform of great celebration. This is what the gospel has the capacity to do, to take the worst of what we once were and who we used to be and what we used to do. And it's no longer a ball and chain that drags us down. It's actually now a platform upon which we celebrate the work of Jesus more loudly because we can look back on our past and I'm no longer condemned by it. I'm now compelled to worship Jesus because of it. Because I can say, wow, look at what Jesus has done. It is no longer a source of condemnation. It's now a platform of celebration. And so in Guyana's life, for example, in the last year and a half, it's, it's basically chaos only punctuated by moments of calm and clarity. That's our journey with her. It's, it's mostly just chaos and craziness. And then every once in a while, there's a moment of sanity and clarity. And one of those moments of sanity came early on when she came into our room one night and said, you know what? I figured out what I want to be when I grow up. We said, great, what's that? And she said, I want to be a social worker. I want to be a caseworker. And we said, that's fantastic. Why? And she said, because since the age of six, I've been in foster care. And I've had nothing but really bad caseworkers my entire life. And these kids deserve good ones. We say, absolutely. Guiana, do you know how unbelievably amazing it would be for you to walk into a room as a caseworker uh, where you see a kid or kids that have been removed from their home and they are experiencing this trauma and this terror and they don't know what's going on and you walk into the room. Someone who's been there can relate to them, can understand them. The level of legitimacy that you have in their lives because you were once them That's a beautiful thing. And we encourage, we want to encourage that. Let's make it happen. And what we began to see just a small glimpse of in that moment was Guyana beginning to consider that maybe 
the, the horrificness of my past doesn't have to drag me down anymore, but maybe now it can actually be redeemed for good moving forward. Does that make sense? It's no longer the source of condemnation. It can actually now be used as a platform for good, not only in my life, but in other people's lives. But it isn't in there. Verse six, Paul continues, our past has been redeemed, but now he talks about our present reality. Because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of a son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. Because you are now sons, you are now children of God, present tense, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. That word Abba is a very tender and affectionate form of the word Father. So Paul's being a bit redundant. He's saying, uh, now the spirit of God has given you the capacity and the desire to refer to God as, as Father, Father. But that word Abba has a slightly more tender and affectionate tone to it. And so our modern translation might be the word daddy. So God has, God has given you his spirit by which you can now refer to him and relate to him as daddy father. So my girls, four girls, uh, they would never come and say, uh, father, can we have some ice cream tonight? In like some super proper British accent. I'd say, of course not. Don't call me that. Don't talk to me like that. I am not your father. I am your father, but I'm daddy, Right. As a matter of fact, we were swimming yesterday and my eight-year-old, she said, dad, can you throw me the ball? I was like, whoa, creepy. Like, dad, what's that stuff, right? She said, I meant daddy, I'm sorry, right? Now, here's the deal. I'm the same guy. I am father. But what's more important for me right now is that my girls understand me as daddy and not just father. There's going to be a lot of years coming up soon when there's a lot of boys at our house and everyone's going to be very clear on who father is in that moment, right? So all that's coming. But what's very important for me right now is that my girls understand me as daddy. Same guy, same guy that lives in their house, the only guy that lives in their house, it's me. But there's something more tender and affectionate about the connotation of daddy. It it suggests this approachability. It suggests this, this vulnerability. It suggests this comfort and this security. And so here's what Paul is laying out for us, is that in your past, your relationship with God was marked by odds and enmity. But now in your new present reality, your relationship with God is defined by intimacy and affection and approachability and security. Here's what that means for you and I. It means that right now in Christ, we don't have to be concerned about what God thinks of us. We know exactly what he thinks of us. He's not disappointed in us. He's not embarrassed by us. He's not surprised by us. When my girls mess up, I'm not surprised by it. It's just life. It's, it's kids, it's humanity. And so when they come to me in shame and embarrassment, or they try to hide, what we continually try to reinforce is, look, you can come to mommy and daddy with anything, anything. And you can always trust how we're going to respond to you with intimacy and affection. The day that they bring something unbelievably vulnerable to us and our response is to push them away, we just shut down that whole relationship. And so the confidence that we have in God is that we can bring anything to him and we know exactly how he's going to respond to us like a good daddy would. We have this new present reality. Our present has been shifted away from odds and enmity and insecurity and now defined by intimacy and affection and security. But it doesn't end there. So verse seven, we'll wrap up and then tell a few stories and get out of here. 
verse 7 says, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So we've seen that our, our present, our past has been redeemed. Our present has been shifted. And now the future trajectory of our lives has been altered forever. He begins to speak to the future. You are now an heir through God. An heir is someone who lives today with the assurance of what's to come tomorrow. That's what an heir is. We live today knowing that something good is coming tomorrow. There is a promise guaranteed that is yet to be fulfilled. Nine times out of 10, I just made that fraction up, but let's go with it. Nine times out of 10, when you read in scripture about what's to come in the future, you're gonna see two consistent promises. The first promise you're gonna see is that glory is coming. And so you're gonna read verses about how our outward bodies are wasting away, but our inward souls are longing for the glory that will be revealed one day. And I don't care how much scripture you understand, the older you get, the more that passage makes sense. Our outward bodies are wasting away. Yes and amen. Get it. The word is true, right? And so we groan and long for the glory that will be revealed. You read passage about, uh, passages about how our, our present struggles have a certain and real and heavy weight to them. Not discrediting that, not dispelling that, not minimizing that. Our present struggles are heavy, but they pale in comparison to the weight of glory that will be revealed one day. And so the first promise we see when we, when we read about our future in scripture is that glory is coming. But the second promise that we see in scripture, which is just as prominent, is that number one, while glory is coming, number two, it's going to be a little bumpy along the way. It's going to be a little rough along the way. It's not going to be a smooth path. It's actually going to be a very difficult one that's full of suffering at times and heartache and struggle and confusion. But in the end, our hope is that glory is coming, that suffering is not the end, that hopelessness is not the end, that confusion is not the end. Everything will one day be made fully clear when the glory of God is revealed. These are our two promises. The glory is coming and it's going to be rough along the way. And so now we live in a world that is really predominated. The predominant message that we are hearing from all aspects of our world right now, from the political arena to Hollywood, to economics, to to meta, everything, we're constantly being told of what we need to be afraid of. And then we're being told to tune back in later to your favorite 24-hour news station to learn more about what you need to be afraid of. And we say, yeah, sign me up. I want to read more, right? We, we read articles online, like worst case scenario articles, right? And we just terrorize ourselves. We paralyze ourselves in fear. The political message that we're constantly bombarded with is all essentially the same. You need to be really, really afraid of what's going to happen if you don't elect me. And you need to be really, really afraid of what's going to happen if you don't pass this, vote for this, get behind this. You need to be really, really afraid of vaccinating your kids. Oh, but you also need to be really, really afraid of not vaccinating your kids. So you just kind of need to be afraid of kids and afraid of everything and live your life paralyzed by fear. Make every decision from a place of fear, right? The economy takes some downward turn and the 24-hour news stations are telling us to buy our gold bars, take out our reverse mortgages, stock up on beans because you're going to be eaten out of the gutter next week, right? It's all going to hell. And then three days later, it's another news story. It's gone. It's something new. We're constantly being told of what we need to be afraid of. The most popular cable TV shows these days are apocalyptic in nature. 
and these driving questions that are underlying the current of humanity are really this. Where's this thing headed? How's it going to end? And who's going to save us from it all? It used to be Jack Bauer. You know, then it was Rick Grimes. Then it was Donald Trump, right? We need a savior. Who's going to save us from this? Because I'm terrified of where everything is headed. And we live in neighborhoods and we sit on the sidelines of our kids' events and we sit in classrooms and in cubicles at work and we're surrounded by people that have bought into the narrative of fear. And they are terrified of where this thing is headed, how it's gonna play out and who's gonna save us from it all. But here's what's true for you and I this morning is that we don't have to be afraid. It doesn't mean that we don't have to be wise or discerning or good stewards. It doesn't mean we can just kick back on our couches and chill. It does mean though, that we can live our lives, not from a place of fear, but from a place of confidence because we know how the story ends. Jesus wins over all of it. And so I don't have to be afraid today. Glory is coming. And so Guiana again comes and says, what if, what if I started dreaming about being a social worker one day? And what we begin to see is that it's impossible, it's impossible to dream when you're so fixated on surviving. And her world has been, has been um, flooded with survival. I do what I have to do today to survive today. There is no space or time or capacity to dream about tomorrow because I just need to survive today. But when she comes and says, what if one day I became this? What we begin to see is that there's dreaming happening and that there's a future hope beginning to articulate itself into her. That maybe I can begin to dream and maybe I can hold on to some hope that it doesn't always have to be like this. And so the fullness of the gospel for us is that Jesus says, I see you where you are and I'm coming after you and I'm stepping into your story and everything is going to change as a result of that. And then in James chapter 127, this is our favorite kind of orphan care adoption verse, but it's not our only one, nor in my opinion, is it our best one, but it's the one that we kind of put on our t-shirts and coffee mugs. And you know, when it's James 127, I'm in a lot of churches around the country all the time, usually on special Sundays where they're preaching on this. And there's like a whole crowd of people wearing their James 127 shirts, right? And they're like, you know, they're like the, piranha, the piranhas in the room because it's like... The crazy people have their James 127 shirts on this morning. Stay away from them, kids. Don't talk to them. Don't make eye contact with them, right? But it, it's so much bigger than that. And it's, it's relevant to all of us in this room. So when James says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, to keep oneself unstained from the world. We really like the orphans part. We don't spend a whole lot of time on the widows part, but really, honestly, this is the equivalent of the oil change guy holding up the dipstick and us kind of nodding in approval, literally having no idea what we're signing off on. So let's have a little fun. Let's have a 60 second seminary class on James 1:27. ready? This is what you do in seminary. You take the word of God and then you just kind of dissect it. And it's super fun. You pay a lot of money to do it. Uh, and then you graduate. So here's what you do in seminary. 
And here's why it's important sometimes. That word religion is not our word religion. It literally means in this context, an outward display of something that's inwardly true. And that's what we're talking about here this morning. An outward display of the gospel, which is inwardly true in us. So it's saying one of the purest, most undefiled outward displays of the gospel is to visit or to move, step towards, get involved with orphans and widows. Now, orphans and widows is not a prescription. It's a description. This isn't orphans and widows only. I don't think if we went to James and said, James, there's a huge homeless crisis in our city. I don't think James would say, I do not care about homeless people. Completely ignore them. Of course not. I don't think if we said, James, we live, we live in Houston. It's one of the, 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 the highest, most trafficked areas in our country. I don't think James would say, don't care. Pretend like it's not there. Orphans and widows or bust, right? Of course not. James is using orphans and widows as representative of the most vulnerable in his context, in his society. Because if you were an orphan or a widow in the day of James, you were, literally, you were worthless socially. And he's using this as representative of the most vulnerable in society. So James is now saying one of the purest displays of the gospel is to move and step towards the most vulnerable in our society in their affliction. And then that word and there is not actually in the original language. We've added it in the English for ease of flow and reading, but it actually corrupts the meaning of the verse. So let's go back to what it originally intended to say and let's remove that word and. And so here's what it says. An outward dis- one of the purest, most undefiled outward displays of the gospel is to see, step towards, get involved with the most vulnerable in society to keep oneself unstained from the world. You see the difference in that message? It's not two different things. Take care of orphans and widows. Oh yeah, and also keep yourself unstained from the world. These aren't mutually exclusive. They're one and the same. You step towards and get involved with the most vulnerable around you. And that's what keeps you unstained from the world. That is an entirely different message. And so what is James suggesting? He's suggesting that one of the purest and most undefiled demonstrations of the gospel is to see hard places and broken people and move towards them, not away from them. Why? Because that's exactly what Jesus has done for us. And when we do that, we keep ourselves unstained from the world. What does that mean? Here's what I think it means. The cultural narrative that you and I live in and the tension that we constantly feel is, is this pressure to do whatever we have to do to build a life around ourselves that is defined by comfort and convenience. And the message that we're constantly hearing in so many terms is insulate isolate and avoid at all costs. You need to move to a community where you can insulate, isolate, and avoid from hard and broken things. You need to put your kids in schools where they can insulate, isolate, and avoid hard and broken things. You need to set up a life around yourself as best as you can, where you can live out your days pretending like hard and broken doesn't exist. And then we're shocked when hard and broken enters our world. The primary message of this world that we live in, that we are continually stained by, is this message of avoid, isolate, and insulate. And then James steps in and says, look, let's become a people that are stained by the brokenness of others rather than stained 
by the narrative of this world. Let's become a people that see hard places and broken people and move towards them, not away from them. Let's no longer be a people that really like to celebrate that that's what God did for us. But gosh, we really don't like the implications of what that might mean in terms of how we live for others. Let's no longer be stained by the world, but stained by the brokenness of others. So the implications are clear, but the applications are broad. We'll start closing. The implications are clear that we become a people that see hard and broken and we move towards it, not away from it. This doesn't mean that we become masochists where we seek out suffering and we seek out hard. You really don't have to look hard. You don't even have to seek it. It's all around you. So the implications are clear, but the applications are broad. The application might mean that we step into issues of foster care and adoption, but it also might mean that we just step across the street and get to know our neighbor. It might also mean that we just step into the life of a family member that's struggling. It might also mean that we just step into the life of someone right here in our own church community that's having a hard time rather than step back and avoid and isolate and say, gosh, I don't know. I I don't know what it will cost me to get involved with that, that we become a people that say, I count the cost as worth it in light of what Jesus has done for me. And so the implications are very clear and the applications are unbelievably broad. Tell a quick story about a helicopter. That's the cue for the helicopter picture, right? So there's a helicopter. This is my brother-in-law flying the helicopter. He used to be the guy getting dropped off by the helicopter. So quick background on my brother-in-law. We live in the same town. We go to the same church. We even live in the same neighborhood. Um, We even play on the same men's church league softball team, right? Uh, Because a couple years ago, my wife said, you need friends. And so I joined the church softball team, right? I like became my dad. I was out there at shortstop. I hate baseball. I'm totally bored, out of my mind. And it dawns on me, I've become my father. I am now like this, this middle, almost middle-aged, kind of uh, middle-class, white Christian man that joined the church men's softball team. How did this happen, right? So here we are. We're on the same softball team. We even have the same haircut. Mine because, uh, well, his because the government requires it. Mine because several years ago, I was downstairs at a bookstore. My wife rode upstairs on an escalator. She looked down on the top of my head and then came back down a few minutes later and said, I love you and it's time. Uh, And so we did it. We shaved it. So on the surface, our lives look pretty similar. But underneath that, we could not be more different. So here's the trajectory. When I went off to A&M to get what a businessman in my church called a worthless liberal arts degree, thank you very much, uh, uh, he went off to West Point to become a man while I was getting a liberal arts degree. Uh, I went from A&M to um, seminary to like drink a lot of coffee and, and draw red lines under words that really nobody cares about in scripture, right? And to study these things. He went from West Point to um, Army Ranger training. He became one of the most well-trained machines that this government has ever produced. And I became a really good blogger, right? And I know the difference between good coffee and bad coffee shops. And I drive through oil change places because I don't want to get dirty and sit in their waiting room, right? So that's me and that's him. So he used to be the guy getting dropped off. Now he's the guy dropping off. I've spent most of my adult life talking and writing and drinking coffee. He has spent most of his adult life flying into parts of the world most of us don't even know exist to protect us from enemies most of us don't even know we have. And then he comes back to College Station as if nothing's ever happened. Totally cool, calm, and collective, which terrifies me the most. 
because I know this man at any moment could literally kill all of us in this room if he so chose, and yet he restrains himself, which is, which is horrifying, right? He knows where all the exits are. He knows who the greatest threat is at all times. And I'm constantly wondering what's going through your head right now, right? Like when we're sitting in Sunday school class, because we go to Sunday school together, right? What's going on in your head right now? Just tell me, right? What did you do last week when you disappeared? I'm fascinated. But here's the deal is I look at a guy like that and I say, man, thank you for doing what you do so that sissies like me don't have to. And I'm totally okay with that, right? And he says, you kidding me? Thank you for doing what you do. Getting up there and preaching and teaching so that guys like me don't have to. And he's totally okay with that. Because here's the deal. The last guy you want jumping out of this helicopter for you is me. I'm not jumping. They are pushing me out. I'm scratching the sides on my way out. I'm hitting the ground playing dead. I love you, but I'm not jumping for you, right? It takes guys like him, but the last guy that you want up here on stage, trust me, is him, okay? He would literally stand here and just survey the room and you would be horrified by what might be going on in his brain. And that's okay. That's how this thing works, that we can look at each other and say, thank you for doing what you do so that I don't have to, so that I can do what God has wired me to do. Because here's what's true in scripture. We're not all called to do the same thing, but we're all capable of doing something. Romans 12 says, as in one body, we have many members. The members don't all have the same function. So we, though many are one body in Christ, we are individually members of one another. So having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. Let us use them. What unique capacities and callings and passions and contexts and relationships has God put around you? For some of you, God is urging you to begin to consider opening up your home to some hard and broken places. For some of you, it might just mean stepping across the street or making a phone call or sending an email or setting up that first coffee appointment with someone where you can just begin to get to know them and love them and begin to step out of the isolation and insulation into some uncomfortable and sometimes awkward territory. And that's okay. Because we're not all called to do the same thing, but we're all capable of doing something. We all celebrate the same gospel, but we don't demonstrate that gospel in the same way. And so let me challenge those of you who are considering opening your home to children from hard places. Let me encourage you to stop praying about it and to just do it. Just do it. Because maybe God has made it abundantly clear. He has said, I want you to clean your room. And you've spent months and years praying about, God, I want clarity on whether or not you want me to clean my room. And he's up there going, been clear, stop asking me, just do it. And for others of you, it might be something different. The implications are clear, but the applications are broad. So let me end with this question and then we're done. I'll invite Gatlin back up. The question that I think haunts most of us is this, do I have what it takes? And I think that's a legitimate question. The question of, do I have what it takes to walk across the street, to engage that conversation, to open my home to heart, to stop avoiding and isolating and to start engaging? Do I have what it takes? And the answer to that question is, is, is uniquely tense because there seems to be conflicting answers. On one hand, the answer is no, you don't have what it takes. You don't have what it takes to save the world. You don't have what it takes to save people. We don't have what it takes to fix Guiana. But the good news in that is that God has not called us to Guiana to fix Guiana. God has called us to Guiana to love her and to be faithful to her and then to trust him with the rest. So on one hand, no, I don't have what it takes. But on the other hand, yes, I do, because God has uniquely wired us 
in certain capacities and passions and resources. And I'm encouraged by this story and then we'll end. In Mark chapter 12, Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money in the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she out of her poverty put in everything, all she had to live on. So this is more than just a building campaign verse, okay? This is more than just we want your money. It's not about that at all. This is a redefinition in the kingdom of God of what more actually is. Because in our world, more is measured by size and quantity and amount. But Jesus completely flips the script on that when he says, hey, disciples, come here. Let me show you what's going on here. A bunch of rich people put in a bunch of money and they gave out of their abundance. And he doesn't say that's bad. He says, that's just what they did. Great, that's what you should do. Now let's move to maybe the more important part. There's a poor lady. All she had was two small coins. She put in both those coins. And in terms of quantity and amount, what she gave was less. But Jesus says, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put more in. In terms of quantity and amount, no, she didn't. But in terms of the economy of God, he flips the script on more. And he says, yes, she did, because she gave everything that she has, even out of her poverty. And I count that as more. And so sometimes in life, you're going to feel like all I've got is two measly little coins to offer into this space. And in terms of quantity and amount and size, it's going to feel insignificant. But in the economy of God, Jesus has placed great value on that and said, don't let that deter you. Don't let that paralyze you. If all you have is two small coins, place it in there and see what I can do with it. If all you've got is a couple fish and loaves, put it in my hands and watch me multiply it. Jesus has the capacity to take what seems very small and insignificant and make eternally, uh, and, and make eternal ripples into the lives of people around us. And so let me leave you with that. Do you have what it takes? Yes and no. God is just simply inviting you to give what you have into the places he's called you and to trust him with the rest. So let me pray. Father, we do thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for your gospel, which is true for us day in and day out, that you stepped into our story and you changed everything about it. And so I pray that you would help us be a people that see and respond to the hard and broken around us. And sometimes it'll feel like all we've got is two small coins. But Father, we trust that you're able to take that and multiply it exponentially far greater than we could ever imagine. And you call that more. So may we be a people that deeply celebrate you and may we be a people that very uniquely demonstrate you in the lives of those around us. It's in your name we pray.